0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. Charles Guiteau had big plans on July 2nd, a Saturday. The plans were so big, in fact, that he had trouble sleeping the night before. He woke at four that morning feeling great, full of anticipation. He got dressed in dark trousers, a black coat, and a soft black hat, then ate breakfast at the hotel where he'd been staying. He charged the meal to his room. After that, he headed over to the train station where he hoped to cross paths with one of the nation's most famous men. As he waited for that to happen, he got his shoes blackened, some last minute primping to prep before the big encounter. He wanted to look his best after all, Even though the year was 1881 and fast-term photography wasn't a thing yet, he still expected that he'd be the talk of the town after this morning and wanted to make sure that the stories were flattering. At about 9.20 in the morning, Charles found a seat in the corner of the ladies' waiting room and mentally prepared himself. Soon, he saw the man he had hoped would show up, President James A. Garfield. Gateau had spent so much time preparing for this encounter that his motions were almost as if automated by the time it happened. He pulled out his handgun, fired two shots at Garfield, and calmly headed toward the door. Those two shots were meant to ensure a swift death for the president, but in reality, Garfield would cling to life for months before succumbing to his wounds. This case not only marked America's second presidential assassination, but after the death, it helped convince the world that washing your hands really does curb the spreading of germs, forever changing medical practices around the world. James Abram Garfield was the last of four children born to Abram and Eliza Garfield on November 19, 1831, in Portage County, Ohio. Abram had been a farmer by trade and a wrestler by hobby. His ancestors had come to America in the mid-17th century. In fact, Edward Garfield was one of 106 proprietors of Waterton, which in 1881 Intelligencer Journal article described as, quote, a lovely suburb of Boston, end quote. That Edward Garfield was either of Saxon or Welsh stock, and he sired another Edward, who sired a Benjamin, who sired a... You get the picture. It keeps going until you reach Abram the Wrestler. Abram had been bound out at age 18, which meant he'd been contracted to work as an indentured servant to a quote-unquote respectable family. But he fell in love and moved westward instead. According to that 1881 story, Abram, quote, struck out for the wilderness of Orange, Ohio, 15 miles from Mentor, taking a half-brother with him. There was but one house within seven miles of them. They erected a log cabin and both lived in it until another was built and then went to work to cut a hole in the forest, end quote. The story of Abram's death is heartbreaking. It came when James was only 18 months old. A fire had broken out in the woods and was getting close to the Garfield's farm, endangering its wheat clearing. Abram went outside and fought the fire all day long, digging ditches, clearing away leaves, and doing whatever he could to divert the blaze. According to the Intelligencer, Abram, quote, came in at night heated and exhausted and got suddenly chilled. For a day or two, he suffered intensely. When a quack doctor came along and said, you're in danger, Garfield, and put a blister around his throat, which drew every particle of inflammation in his body into Garfield's throat, and he choked to death at 33, in the fullness of his strength. End quote. If you're curious what he meant by blister, so was I. Apparently, some doctors like to apply the cantharidin from blister beetles, also called Spanish flies, to sick patients' throats because it would cause the skin to blister. And for some damn reason, they thought this would draw out inflammation and heal you. It's in the same vein as bloodletting. Anyway, before Abram died, he reportedly said to his wife, quote, "Eliza, I have brought you four young saplings into these woods. Take care of them." End quote. And then he died sitting up against the head of his bed. He left the family penniless. From a documentary by Biographics.
1: To give you just some idea of how poor the family was, they couldn't afford shoes for the boy until he was four.
0: But Eliza was determined to do right by her children. She cordoned off a corner of the family's property and had a log schoolhouse built with James proving to be her star student
1: poor he may have been but the boy was also exceptionally bright far more capable and intelligent than anyone else in their corner of the world and people will recognize this his mother scrimped and saved to try and find money to send him to school his older brother oh went out to work at 11 just to help raise the 17 dollars they needed for garfield's education Not that the boy initially wanted to study. Having grown into a big burly lad with powerful arms just like his old dad, the teenage boy was convinced his future lay in a life of adventure as a sailor, not in being a boring old bookworm.
0: So he set out to become a sailor, even though he couldn't swim. Just further proof that there's a big difference between street smarts and book smarts, right? Garfield got a job on the Erie Canal.
1: Garfield was almost comically unsuited to canal work. By his own admission, he fell in the water and had to be rescued 14 times in six weeks. On top of that, he contracted malaria and eventually wound up being sent home to
0: recover. He wisely returned to education. He had an amazing memory, won scholastic prizes, and seemed to absorb lessons in civics and government especially well. When his health was recovered enough, he attended Giaga Academy in Chester, Ohio. To support himself, he taught part-time and also worked as a carpenter, so his brawny side didn't go to waste. After Giaga, he went to a place called the Eclectic Institute, also in Ohio, during his early 20s. In the book, An Assassin in Utopia, he's described as, quote, tall, beefy, athletic, and serious, known for his charm, scholarship, and speaking ability, end quote. His classmates reportedly idolized him as a school hero, but once done at Eclectic, he still wasn't finished with school. He went on to Williams College in Massachusetts, from which he graduated in 1856. After that, he returned to Eclectic, this time to teach Latin and Greek. His second year, he was appointed to be the school's principal. He was only 26 years old.
1: Garfield was one of those people you're always happy to see. The kind of guy who'll give you a bear hug, buy you a drink, tell you a dirty joke, and then leave you crying with laughter. He hunted, he drank, he chased the ladies, at one point keeping three women on the go at once.
0: Unfortunately for his wife, that stayed true after he got hitched, too. Her name was Lucretia Rudolph, and the two had met at Eclectic. As author Mark Grubert said in his talk about Garfield on the YouTube channel America's Untold Stories, Lucretia was... Completely introverted, completely the opposite of him. The shyest girl in the school.
2: Her father, however, is one of the benefactors of the school. So she comes from a lot of money. He comes from abject poverty and he asks her to marry him. And while they're engaged, he has multiple affairs.
0: It was not an idyllic pairing, certainly not in the early years.
2: So they get married. He goes on the road to become a politician. In six years, she says, I've only seen you for a total of six weeks Uh uh, in this marriage. And the marriage is so bizarre. He's telling her to loosen up. And she is really uptight around him. She will not relax around him. She's very introverted. She's very, I hate to use the word frigid.
0: I hate that you use the word frigid too.
2: But uh, you know, this is oil and water, the two of them. He is a sexual animal.
0: There are obviously better ways to word this marital issue. Here's an easy way. The two had mismatched libidos. There, it's not that hard. Anyway, Lucretia must have either had the patience of a saint or was content being a doormat. I can't decide which. Either way, she stayed married to Garfield, who would time and again apologize for his behavior, promise to change, and then go off and have another affair, which was made all the easier by his entrance into politics. First in the mid-1850s, when he became the youngest member of the Ohio legislature. Garfield was an abolitionist. As the country was being settled, he was among a group of liberal thinkers, then labeled part of the Republican Party, who were adamant that as settlers moved west, slavery must stop in his tracks. As in, his focus first was to stop slavery from expanding, and then he shifted gears to fighting to end it where it existed. In the presidential election of 1860, Garfield campaigned for Abraham Lincoln. When southern states began talking of secession... Garfield was uncompromising, saying, quote, "To make the concessions demanded by the South would be hypocritical and sinful. They would neither be obeyed nor respected. I'm inclined to believe that the sin of slavery is one of which, it may be said, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. end quote." He put his money where his mouth was and not only fought for the Union in the Civil War, but he gave a recruiting speech at a church that prompted 60 boys to immediately enlist alongside him. He proved to be a shrewd and effective leader with his success in the Battle of Middle Creek, Kentucky, later being called the Battle That Made a Presidency. Garfield was only 30 at the time, and his victory there resulted in the collapse of Confederate control in eastern Kentucky. As burly a guy as Garfield was, though, his health failed him at inopportune times, especially during the war. He survived a few bouts of bloody dysentery and suffered hemorrhoids that made riding his horse absolute agony. So eventually, he was sent home to recover. Being away from the battlefields allowed him to return to politics, which he surely must have figured was a safer place to be. He was wrong. Ten years after James Garfield was born in Ohio, his eventual killer made his debut in Freeport, Illinois. Charles Gateau was born September 8, 1841, to parents Luther and Jane, Jane was generally not a well woman. She suffered from psychosis for much of her life, though it's unclear if that played a role in her 1848 death when Charles was just seven years old. Raised by his father, Charles was an awkward boy with a bit of a stutter, and his dad was the kind of fellow who thought beating him would help him stop stammering. Luther was also ultra-religious and would physically beat his son if he deemed his behavior not pious enough. As a kid, Charles worked for his father, who, according to the National Archives, bounced around positions in both the private and government sectors. Eventually, Charles decided to go the college path, attending the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which I swear is mentioned in about a third of our case studies, right? But Charles was neither a stellar student nor a popular one in part because he was both insecure as shit and also had an inflated sense of self-importance. People who encountered him in his young adulthood said he needed constant reassurance that he was worthy, and if you didn't give him that reassurance, he decided you were disrespecting him and he was too good to tolerate that. In 1860, Charles left the university and decided to join a religious commune in New York that was just about as old as he was. Both had originated in 1841. This part of the story is wild if it's new to you, which it was to me. The commune was in a town called Oneida, and it's from this place that the Oneida Dishes and Flatware Company originated. Oneida was founded as a...
3: Free love, kind of open marriage, communitarianism, kind of share-everything kind of society.
0: This is from the Hip Hughes History Channel on YouTube. Next time you eat off your own IDAware, you'll now know that it was forged from a commune with interesting philosophies.
3: They believed basically that sex had two purposes. One in the sense of of bonding with another human being, sharing that experience, a pleasure kind of aspect, and then for uh, procreation. So they decided that they would be able to have sex with each other, and anybody could have sex with anybody, but they would not reach ejaculation and they believed like in a spiritual orgasm they could orgasm without fulfilling the deed so they really believed in this concept that if you did orgasm that that would like spent your spirit in a sense it operated like being a contraceptive so women had power and men had power and they could have this sexual relationship without worrying about children hashtag creepy
0: this really isn't the creepy part as far as i'm concerned The creepy part is that old-ass men would have sex with sometimes 12, 13, 14-year-old girls. The commune's founder, John Humphrey Noyes, raised one girl, a niece, from infancy and began having sex with her in her adolescence. He literally said to this girl, you are a true daughter to me, and that he was bewitched by her. He also said it was his duty to impregnate her, according to the girl's own diary entries. She wrote, quote, he had considerable curiosity to see what kind of a child we should produce. He said to combine with me would be intensifying the noise blood more than anything else he could do, end quote. They never reproduced, but Noyes did impregnate the girl's sister, another of his nieces. Today, this would rightly be illegal. In fairness, though, it wasn't exactly embraced in the 1800s either. Before Noyes founded Oneida, he'd formed another group in Vermont that eventually ran him and his polygamous followers out of town. He wasn't as loathed in New York, in part because he and his followers made a point to be very good neighbors, and not in any euphemistic sense. They were, as author Susan Wells put it, generous, industrious, and honest neighbors. They were also a tourist attraction from Wells' book, An Assassin in Utopia. Quote, Thousands came by trains and carriages to see this infernal Eden carved from hundreds of acres of wild woodland. They marveled at orchards bursting with fruit, thick herds of Ayrshire cattle and Cotswold sheep, whizzing mills and outlandish machinery. They picnicked on spreading lawns, Drowsy from plates piled with strawberries and cream and the sweet, soothing voices of singing children. End quote. This softened most of the criticism lobbed at the commune, which kept the place out of the crosshairs of its local district attorney, a guy named Roscoe Conkling, who will come up again later. Age of consent and incest issues aside, Most women were allowed to say no to proposed sexual unions, so they didn't complain much about the situation. This proved to be a problem for Charles Guiteau, however, who in today's parlance was basically an incel. As Hip Hughes put it,
3: They didn't like him very much. They nicknamed him Charles Guiteau, and they actually kicked him out.
0: For the record, that was Hip's musical choice, not mine. But I don't mind it. Anyway, Charles Get Out, oh, I mean Gâteau got super frustrated that the women in this free love society rebuffed his advances, so he left for a bit in early April 1865, just before President Lincoln was assassinated for those good with dates. No one at Oneida seemed to mind Charles' departure. In fact, they seemed happy to be rid of him. At age 23, Charles set his sights on launching a daily theocratic newspaper, but he had zero experience in doing any of the things needed to create a newspaper, and the folks he approached with the idea laughed in his face. Three months after departing Oneida, he pleaded with the community leaders to take him back, which they did on a trial basis. Charles was ordered to work in a manufacturing plant, which he hated but nothing compared to his hatred of his involuntary celibacy. When he complained, leaders scolded him that he had to earn those privileges, Wells wrote. They would say things like, quote, We took you in out of charity. You are now and have always been a dead weight, End quote. Finally, a tad more than a year after he had returned to Oneida, Charles left again for good. He toyed with the idea of studying law and, again, with launching a newspaper. Just to give you some context of the industry at this point, I'll mention this was an era during which Karl Marx wrote dispatches for Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, which also hired a Missouri fellow named Samuel Clemens as a foreign correspondent in 1867. Clemens became better known by his pen name, Mark Twain. Greeley, meanwhile, was a big fan of Oneida-style communes, more commonly referred to as utopian communities. And through his newspaper, he even helped launch one in Colorado. Today, Greeley, Colorado is a city boasting some 110,000 residents. Charles Gateau was in no hurry to join another commune, though. He moved to New York and, in the years after his departure, actually sued the Oneida community asking for $9,000 for his six years of work at Oneida. Community founder Noyes responded in an affidavit that Gouteau had been moody, egotistical, and impossible to manage during his time at Oneida. And oh yeah, he was addicted to masturbation too. Guteau's lawyer dropped the suit, but Guteau never dropped the grudge. He moved to Illinois, became a low-tier lawyer of sorts, I mean, basically a bill collector, got a local librarian to marry him, and then mistreated her for five years until she finally left him. Now, I mentioned Roscoe Conkling earlier. He'd been Oneida County's district attorney, and whether real or imagined, Charles Gateau felt he knew the guy from the time they overlapped in the Oneida region. Long story short, Conkling became a bigwig in politics. After serving as a DA, he became mayor of Utica, New York at age 28, then was elected to Congress at age 29. He and the aforementioned Horace Greeley ended up hating each other, in part because Greeley's newspaper didn't endorse Conkling's 3rd reelection bid, which Conkling lost, and then the two ran against each other to become a New York senator. Conkling beat Greeley. They'd go on to sabotage and badmouth each other for years. This all matters because in the wake of the Civil War, the Liberal Party of the time, that is, the Republican Party, was split into factions. You had the Stalwarts, led by Conkling, who were considered the Old Guard. They advocated for civil rights, but were opposed to efforts to enact civil service reform, particularly the issue of patronage which was the assigning of political privileges, you know, appointments and such, to supporters. The stalwarts' opposition would be the so-called half-breeds who wanted to overhaul the patronage system. I've mentioned before that my brain can start to bleed if I read too much about politics from any era, so I'll spare you most of the nitty-gritty details, but what's important to know is that Charles Gateau considered himself a stalwart, wormed his way into Conkling's circle and was a big supporter of Chester Arthur, who would eventually be named vice president to half-breed James Garfield as a way to try to smooth over tensions in the divided Republican Party. It didn't work in part because Conkling, who was close friends with Arthur and had a hand in ultimately swaying some holdout votes for the Garfield-Arthur ticket, approached Garfield and said,
2: I am expecting my spoils, sir.
0: This is Mark Gruber of America's Untold Stories. And he is told by
2: the president, Garfield, there will be no spoils for you. I'm giving it to Joe Blow. Conkling literally gets into a shoving match with him in the Oval Office. He flips out Conkling. He's a violent man. He really lets him have it because he's known him. I mean, it'd be like the equivalent of McConnell. You know what I mean today? I mean, this guy was huge. And he is told that he can't have the number one spoil that he's had for so long. And he flips out. He resigns his seat as the United States Senator, thinking that the New York Assembly and legislature is going to put him back in, like raise him up saying, we really need you. And it doesn't happen.
0: The stalwarts faction of the party was furious on Conkling's behalf. They were enraged even further when Garfield appointed James Blaine as Secretary of State in 1881. Conkling and Blaine had been mired in a long-standing feud and pretty much hated each other. To people who believed in the spoils system, their thinking was, hey, a politician should be able to reward the people who were loyal to him full stop. They thought these people had worked on their behalf, they put the guy in office, and there's nothing wrong with rewarding their efforts. To those who oppose patronage, the idea was something along the lines of what's generally considered acceptable today. Politicians should appoint the best people for the job, not the biggest donor or supporter. If there's someone who overlaps on the Venn diagram, that's great. But take the show Succession. There's a reason it feels gross when failed presidential candidate, Connor Roy, agrees to throw his support behind Jared Menken in exchange for an ambassadorship, right? Well, Conkling was enraged by Garfield's refusal to reward him and Charles Gateau, who had given a few mediocre speeches on behalf of the Garfield-Arthur ticket, felt similarly snubbed. For some reason, Gateau had thought he had campaigned hard enough to earn himself a consulship in Paris. And in the months after the election, he approached Garfield and Blaine about the post again and again until Blaine finally snapped. The Secretary of State said, quote, never speak to me again on the subject of the Paris consulship, end quote. Blaine considered his delivery firm, but not harsh. But he didn't know Gateau was mentally unstable. Gateau started to think that there was just one way to unite the Republican Party, and that was for President Garfield to die. James Garfield didn't love being president. He hadn't campaigned particularly hard for the Post, and in fact did most of his stump speeches at his own house. People would travel by train to see him speak. By the time he was elected, his philandering days finally seemed to be behind him. He and his wife Lucretia, called Crete by her friends, had seven children together, including a daughter named Eliza, after Garfield's mother, who was nicknamed Little Trot. Garfield and Crete adored this girl. She was their firstborn, and they were devastated when she fell ill and died at age three in 1863. Their youngest, a boy named Edward, born in 1876, also died as a toddler. Still, parenthood seemed to have healed the couple's marriage and curbed Garfield's roving eye. Crete fell ill during the early days of Garfield's presidency, and that, too, seemed to bring them closer together. Garfield nursed his wife and worked to be a good father to his five surviving children. While doing so, he punted on a lot of his presidential responsibilities which only further rankled his critics. Newspapers aligned with the stalwart faction weren't even shy about wistfully suggesting that a lot of their woes would be quieted if someone would just kill the president. Garfield's allies worried about his safety. One urged him to take precautions, but Garfield replied, I am no coward and I can't have a bodyguard about me all the time. He also said, Assassination can be no more guarded against than death by lightning, and it is best not to worry about either. On one hand, you might think Garfield, who had campaigned heartily for Lincoln, a man who had been assassinated some 18 years before Garfield was elected president, would be acutely aware of the danger related to the office. But Lincoln was the first president killed, and a lot of people thought the circumstances were extraordinary because of the resentment that lingered in the country after the Civil War. Garfield didn't see himself as being in that kind of danger. If he had known how unstable Charles Guiteau was, though, maybe he would have. After
1: borrowing money from a relative, Guiteau purchased a four four two Webley British Bulldog Revolver, a box of cartridges, and a penknife for a total of $10.
0: This is from Highlight History.
1: While the ordinary model with the wooden grips was cheaper, Guiteau opted for an ivory-handled example because he thought it would look better when it was eventually displayed in a museum.
0: Charles wasn't weapon-savvy, so he spent several days familiarizing himself with a gun And shooting into the trees along the Potomac River for practice. He began writing letters telling some people of his plan to kill Garfield. No one took him seriously. Charles staked out the president for days. He watched as Garfield came and left the White House as he met with cabinet members and as he took Crete to the train station to head off a few days before him on what was supposed to be a month-long vacation for the whole Garfield family. Charles had heard about Crete and the children's travel plans in late June 1881 and was waiting at the station with his gun, but he lost his nerve to shoot Garfield then because Crete still looked so fragile from her recent illness. A few days later, though, Garfield was leaving Washington, D.C. to join his family on their vacation. He had awoken in especially high spirits. I mean, he was really looking forward to this vacay. And as he walked with Secretary of State Blaine to his train, he ambled past a scraggly looking man seated quietly in a lady's waiting room. Charles spotted his intended target and fired two shots. The first bullet only grazed Garfield's elbow, but the second lodged in his back. Garfield fell forward. A police officer who heard the gunshots quickly apprehended Charles, who said, quote, I did it, and I want to be arrested. I'm a stalwart, and Arthur is now president, end quote. Though the word assassination appeared in multiple newspapers the following day, that wasn't because Garfield's condition was immediately thought to be fatal. In fact, many of the stories seemed quite hopeful that he'd recover, including a report from President Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, who was Garfield's Secretary of War. Robert Lincoln summoned a well-known physician named Dr. Willard Bliss to treat Garfield. This is from a documentary by Historyville. The doctor examined Garfield's bullet
4: wound with his fingers and an unsterilized metal probe and concluded that a bullet was in the president's liver.
0: Because back then, not all doctors washed their hands.
4: In the years following the American Civil War, there was a theory in the medical community that germs could be spread by introducing unwashed hands to an open wound.
0: But not everyone believed that theory.
4: It was common practice at the time for surgeons to use unsterilized instruments in multiple surgeries while wearing a bloody gown. Joseph Lister worked tirelessly to promote the theory of antiseptic surgery. He taught that infection could be lessened by sterilizing instruments and washing hands. But Bliss disregarded the theories of Dr. Lister.
0: Listerine is named for Dr. Lister, if you're wondering. Time and again, Bliss stuck his unwashed fingers into the bullet hole in Garfield's back, trying to probe for the piece of metal. When he couldn't find it, he brought in Alexander Graham Bell.
4: The inventor of the telephone who attempted to locate the bullet with an electrical device he called the induction balance, a metal detector. Bell discovered what he thought was the bullet and had doctors cut the president to remove it. Alas, Bell was wrong. His metal detector had found a metal spring in the mattress
0: under the president. Garfield's condition vacillated wildly. He would seem to be on the mend, holding down food and even sitting upright, only to take a sudden turn.
4: He remained bedridden in the White House with fevers and extreme pains. His weight dropped drastically as he was unable to keep down and digest food. Blood poisoning and infection set in, and for a brief period, the president suffered from hallucinations.
0: Crete, who had rushed back from vacation as soon as she heard Garfield had been shot, tried to help nurse him back to health. But Dr. Bliss was adamant that he be the only one determining how to treat the president, and he made some really weird choices. For example, he gave Garfield so-called nutrient enemas, During which he would pipe animal blood or liquefied food into the president's body through his anus. This wasn't helpful, and Garfield lost some 90 pounds, shrinking from 220 pounds to about 130 by early September.
4: His body oozed pus as the infections raged. On September 6, 1881, he was taken to Elberon, New Jersey to escape the Washington, D.C. heat, and with the vain hope that he might recover. But the ailing president died on September 19, 1881, exactly two months before his 50th birthday.
0: Guiteau, meanwhile, was awaiting trial in jail. When his day in court arrived in November of 1881, just two months after Garfield's death, Gateau seemed surprised that he wasn't being heralded a hero for his act. Not only that, but he said hell. I didn't even kill the president, I simply shot at him, he said. It was the physicians who killed him. And over time, that's generally accepted to be true. Garfield survived his bullet wounds, and ultimately, after his autopsy, the bullet was found encased in scar tissue inside of his body. The bullet wasn't causing trouble, but the doctors' repeated insertion of their ungloved, unwashed fingers into the wound sure as hell did. The scrutiny on Garfield's treatment and sepsis-related death ended up bolstering support of Dr. Lister's theories about the importance of washing hands to keep germs out of wounds. Still, prosecutors argued and jurors agreed that none of that would have happened had Garfield not been shot to begin with. On January 5, 1882, it took the jury only an hour to come back with a verdict— They found Gateau guilty and sentenced him to be hanged on June 30th, just days shy of the anniversary of Garfield's shooting. Gateau held out hope that Chester Arthur, who became president thanks to Gateau's work, would pardon him, but that never happened. Rewarding the guy who killed the president to pave the way for Arthur to become president was even too pro-spoil system for Arthur. Gateau was furious, but he believed that history wouldn't view him as Guiteau the Assassin. They'd instead label him Guiteau the Patriot. This hasn't happened. Guiteau is remembered mostly as a squirrely, pale, mentally disturbed man who on the gallows pulled out a piece of paper to read a poem he had written the morning of his execution. It read, in part... I am going to the Lordy. I am so glad. I am going to the Lordy. I am so glad. I am going to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. I saved my party and my land. Glory, hallelujah. But they have murdered me for it. And that is the reason I am going to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. This goes on for a while. I wonder what I will see when I get to the Lordy, I expect to see most glorious things beyond all earthly conception, when I am with the Lordy, glory hallelujah, glory hallelujah, I am with the Lord. After he was done reading his poem, he dropped the paper to the ground and was hanged. His brain was saved and remains in a jar to this day at a medical museum in Pennsylvania. To research this story, I read Susan Wells' book An Assassin in Utopia, the true story of a 19th century sex cult and a president's murder. I also read a bunch of contemporary news coverage and watched the reference documentaries. The sung snippet of Gouteau's Gallows poem is Rich Gray singing from Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins, which as you can imagine is just full of bangers. Of the Centuries is a production of the Obsess Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessNetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.